So for those of you who are new, uh, my name is Brian. I'm the senior pastor here at this church. We want to welcome those of you who are here for the very first time, and we want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. I want to start out by telling you the most disappointing movie I've seen in 2018 so far. If you were to pick the, the most disappointing movie so far, which, which one would it be? Go ahead and lean to your neighbor and tell them that real fast. Most disappointing movie. All right. Now, let me tell you, uh, the question isn't what is the worst movie. Uh, that is an easy thing because the worst movie I've seen in 2018 uh, was this movie, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I hear a lot of you gasping. Okay, and that's because you didn't have my experience. It was a Friday night, nine o'clock a couple weeks ago. We hit that movie and about um, 11.45 I woke up and I was like, what happened? What, what happened? I should have gotten an Oscar for trying to stay awake in that movie. Anyway, that was the worst. The most disappointing movie uh, was this movie, The Black Panther. Now, uh, the black, everyone was raving about this movie online, and I couldn't wait to see it because it has two of my favorite characters, uh, Michael B. Jordan, who, if you're fans of Friday Night Lights, the first saw him in Friday Night Lights, was amazing. Michael B. Jordan was in it. And then Forrest Whitaker, whose portrayal of Idi Amin, did you see that in The Last King of Scotland? Hands down, what I consider the greatest cinematic performance in movie history of all time. He is the, one of the greatest actors ever. So I was excited to go to this movie. The reason I was disappointed is it was a superhero movie with a powerful, amazing, all-black cast. And so I just assumed that the Black Panther would encounter some racism, and as soon as he saw it, like his arms would raise up, and then lightning would shoot out of his fingertips, and he would melt people's faces off, right? Now, how awesome would that be? Now, I thought that was going to happen actually in the movie, but if you've seen the movie, you know that doesn't happen. What are the Black Panther's superpowers? Number one, he's really cool, like Jamie Foxx and Spandex. And second, he has a really smart sister who makes a bunch of cool gadgets. And I was like, wait a minute. Surely the writers could have created better supernatural powers for this guy. And so I did a little research, and it turns out once you get past Superman, these Justice League superheroes don't actually have any real superpowers. And the funny thing is, those of you who geek out on stuff like this are like, it's the Avengers, Brian, it's not the Justice League, and the fact that you're 35 and you know that is a little scary. <laughs> Turns out once you get past Superman, there are a whole bunch of superheroes like Ant-Man. Have you seen Ant-Man? Of course, one of us saw it. It was terrible, right? Here, here's another one. Um, the Red Tornado. The Red Tornado. Want to guess his superpower? He spins around in a circle real fast. Really? The Red Tornado. Okay, here's another one. Vibe. You want to know what his superpower? First of all, I think the comic got it right, the unlikeliest hero. That's because his superpower is he dresses up like MC Hammer and he makes things vibrate. That's it. Uh, this one's terrible. Um, animal man. He dresses up in orange tights and acts like a zookeeper. And I'm like, whoever is writing this stuff for superheroes needs to give these people supernatural superpowers. 
like this guy. I'm going to show you here in a second. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him either. His name is Fashion Man. His, his superpower is he can outdress you in any situation. Like the way he brought Justin Timberlake to his knees last year. This is, this is a picture from the finals of the World Fedora Competition in Vienna. Justin's getting ready to tip his hat to Fashion Man. Now the thing is, like all superheroes, Fashion Man has a weakness. Superman has his kryptonite. Fashion Man is no different. Fashion Man's weakness is that when he sits down to eat lunch, all of his coolness immediately disappears. Like when he tried to eat a salad recently in the middle of a staff meeting, (laughs) went all over his lap. Fashion Man just loses any sense of coolness when that kind of stuff happens. Or like whenever I eat sushi with Fashion Man, the waitress has to give him the little kitty chopsticks with a rubber band around the end, right? Fashion Man travels around Japan for seven years and he doesn't know how to use chopsticks. So those are the superheroes we're familiar with. There's another superhero that goes by a different name and that's Transference Man. Transference Man's superpower is he's able just by seeing you and talking to you and touching you to know exactly how you feel. And his superpower is he's able to take into himself exactly what you're experiencing in your mind and in your heart. And unlike these superheroes that we make up, this superhero actually has the ability to change us. We're in the middle of this series called Jesus for the Rest of Us. And what we're doing is we're looking at the way Jesus treated people that were considered outsiders by the religious leaders of the day. And Matt Silver did a fabulous job getting us kicked off last week by looking at how Jesus treated tax collectors. And we're going to look at a different portion of the Gospel of Matthew today. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. For those of you who are brand new, uh, the concept of actually looking at a Bible is strange. The Bible is something that sat on your coffee table at home when you were growing up as a kid. We believe, however, that this is the instruction manual, the book that helps us make life work. So what we do is we dedicate a portion of our service every time we gather to reading it and then applying it to our lives in the 21st century. And so Uh, As you're coming in, there are always carts there where you can grab a Bible. Those are our gifts to you. If you want to look up the electronic version of the passage we're looking at today, you can download our church app on your phone, type in Movie Church, um, go to the button then that says Bible, and uh, you can follow along. Now, for those of you who are new, um, the Gospel of Matthew is one of four mini biographies. And uh, what the Gospel of Matthew does is he condenses all of Jesus' teachings into five major blocks of teaching. Now, why would he have done that? Why would Matthew have taken all of Jesus' teaching and put it into five large blocks? Many scholars believe it's because Matthew is making a statement that Jesus' teaching, like the first five books of the Old Testament law, is a revelation from God, but it's not just a revelation from God, it's a commentary upon, and it supersedes, and it's the final explanation of God's revelation to us through the Old Testament Torah. And so you find in the very first passage, Jesus said, "Um, you know what, you have heard that it was said, do not do this, but I tell you, 
here's the real scoop. And so what we're going to look at today is what theologians call a, a summary statement, a transitional passage between, that occurs between each of these five major sections. And so what it does is it, it, it condenses a whole lot of activity into just a few sentences. And so our passage is, is in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, and I'll read it. Jesus went all through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Now, when you read that passage, what, what stands out to you? To me, there are a couple things. One is, Jesus is a teacher and a healer. He's constantly teaching people and healing people. And the second thing is, he's asking us then to go out as a church and to teach and heal. And that's why we do what we do every single week. We do it locally. We're going to the Congo. We're going to help people who are suffering tremendous and terrible violence there, and we do it all over the world, starting right here in our community. So we're simply doing what Jesus told us to do. But the reason I wanted to point out that passage is there's one single line that sort of shows the power of Jesus's ability to transfer from us to him what we're going through. It says this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them is an interesting word. The word compassion uh, in the original Greek literally meant like intestines or guts. But metaphorically, it meant to feel like your guts are being twisted inside. Like when was the last time you cried? Like a bawling, snot dripping down the shirt, bawling, crying. When was the last time that happened? Happened maybe in a movie, maybe it happened as someone was passing away, or there was some terrible, terrible thing that happened to you or to your family. That feeling of compassion, it says, the twisting of your guts, is what Jesus felt when he saw other people in pain. And so you see this all throughout the four biographies of Jesus, this statement that he had compassion or his heart went out to him sometimes. It says this, like this, this word is used in Luke chapter 7 verse 13 where it says that Jesus saw a woman who lost both her husband and her only son, which meant she's going to become a prostitute immediately. Can you imagine right now if you lived in a culture where if you, didn't, if you weren't married to a man that could provide for you, or you didn't have an older son that could work, that this week you could lose both of them, and the only way you were going to be able to survive is that you would become a prostitute. So it says his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Or we all know the story of the good, good Samaritan. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He felt it. And probably the most famous example, the story of the prodigal son, Jesus said, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, looking at his son. He ran to his son, 
threw his arms around him and kissed him. When we lived in Dayton, Ohio, there was a huge imposing stone building called the Stillwater Center. It was an old mausoleum uh, that was used in the early 20s for different, different academic, ec, or epidemics that came down the pike. I'd driven by it a million times when we lived there. But every, have you ever driven by buildings? You're like, I wonder what that thing is. Well, finally, I, I had time one afternoon, and I'm like, I'm going to go find out. So I drove up to this building, and I couldn't really see any signs. I had no idea. So I'm like, I'm just going to walk in the front door. And uh, that's what I did. I walked in, a lady greeted me and said, oh, let me get the director. And he came out and started yelling at me, what are you doing here? And I'm like, uh, I'm just a pastor in the area, and I have driven by this a million times. I have no idea what this facility is. Who are you really? Who are you? I'm like, I'm me? No, he just kept grilling me on and on and on for about 10 minutes. He thought I was a reporter who was coming to do some kind of expose on their facility. I'm like, well, dude, what's the big deal? What do you do here? And he said, he asked me some more questions. He said, the only way I can really explain what we do here is let me just take you into the back. And so he got a, a pass on me and took my information down, took my driver's license, the whole thing and took me into the back of this long hallway. If you've ever been in an emergency room, you see long hallways where they have uh, uh, curtains between each of these rooms. And off at a distance before we got back there, it looked like in each of these beds there were large stuffed animals because no one was moving, and there were nursing staff that were going everywhere. And he walked me up to the very first bed, and he said, this is Stephen, he's 11. Stephen was maybe three feet long, and he looked like a mound of clumped flesh, completely in a ball. And he just laid there motionless on a, on a ventilator. His arms and fingers were curled into a ball. I asked him how long Stephen had been at the center, and he said, I've been here 10 years. He's been here as long as I have. I'm like, what do you do here? He said, we take care of people when either they're abandoned or their family members can no longer take care of them. And they took me over to another bed, and he said, now this is Laura. And as soon as I turned around and saw her, I winced because she was missing the majority of her head and her face. And as he's talking about Laura and what her issues were and how long she had been there and how she had been completely abandoned, and I couldn't help but notice that the director was reaching down and he, he was taking his finger like I would do to one of my daughters when they were young and he, he was taking Laura's hair and like parting it and then pulling it back behind her ear. And then he just was caressing Laura's forehead. And as I'm standing there, I thought to myself that this is exactly what Jesus would do. This is exactly how he would have responded if he was here. Because here I am wincing, horrified at what I'm looking. And he just looked right and saw her. Now, that's how Jesus felt when he looked at the crowds. And so, in between 
each of these teachings, he would go and just teach crowds of people and he would look out and he would feel this intense pain in his heart for what they were going through in their lives. I talk to people all the time. Like, God is up, if, if there is even a God, he's up there, he doesn't care about me. And you need to understand that as Richard Foster said, God, God's heart is an open wound of love. And so what does this have to do with us? I think there are a couple lessons in this passage I wanted to point out. And the first is this, is that we have to watch out for toxic religious people. Toxic religious people have a way of crushing our spirits. So many of you have grown up in nutty fundamentalist churches and traditions. You grew up in situations, in schools, in environments where you were taught at a very young age that God rules with a belt instead of an open wound of love. I want you to look at this passage again. Verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Here's the, here's the question. Why did Matthew say that they were harassed and helpless? Who was doing the harassing? Who was doing the harassing that caused these people to become helpless, causing Jesus to feel immense compassion for people that feel helpless in life and powerless in life? Who were the people that were doing the harassing? The people that were doing the harassing were the crazy religious leaders that instead of loving for the sheep, they were taking their time and beating the sheep. And so as a result of that, as not having anyone there in your corner loving on you and being there and teaching and having compassion, we human beings as a result will always go astray. We will always feel lost. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, be careful, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What is he talking about? The yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What does that mean? He's using the example of, of baking bread. How you put a little yeast and it fills it up, right? Makes the bread expand. And he said oftentimes human beings will be in social groups and there will be one individual who, were, who will introduce a little bit of yeast and suddenly it will affect a whole group of people. And Jesus is saying, you have to be on your guard. Many scholars believe the word Pharisees meant the separate ones. They were focused on doing and observing God's law. And they were good at it. They had made a list of every command in the Old Testament, 613 of them. And they did everything that they could to obey every single one. Well, what do you, have, what do you think happened as a result of being so intensely focused on obeying those commands? They turned around and they looked at people who didn't do that, and they judged them. They ostracized them. They made them feel terrible. The Old Testament law, for example, says don't work on the Sabbath, which was Friday night to Saturday night. And so what happened? The separate ones turned that into a rigid command. And so there would be a guy out on his field and his ox would fall into a ditch. 
And so the Pharisees would come along as the guy is trying to pull his livelihood out of the ditch, and they would say, you are breaking God's command. You need to let the ox stay there. And if it's alive in the morning, it's God's will. If it dies tonight, it's God's will. You need to obey the Sabbath. And Jesus comes along, and he's like, that is quite possibly the stupidest thing I have ever heard in my life. How do you come up with these things? You come up with these things because if you had a heart of compassion for people, you would, you would understand God's heart of compassion. The intent of the Sabbath, as Jesus said, Sabbath was made for human beings, not human beings for the Sabbath. Get your ox out of the ditch and shut up, Pharisees. Now, unfortunately, these people still exist today. I want to show you a clip from a crazy fundamentalist pastor who beats the sheep over and over again and is quite proud of all of the crazy things that he says. Uh, you know, I just wanted to just take a look. I was reading my Bible this week, and I kept seeing this phrase jump out at me in the Bible. And you're not going to like this, but you haven't liked the sermon up till now, so why would I, why would I try and please you now? You're going you're to be mad no matter what I say. But I was reading the Bible... And uh, I kept seeing this phrase, and I, and I studied this phrase in the Bible. It's used six times, and it's used by God. It's used out of the mouth of God. And uh, it's when the prophet is preaching to the king of Israel, Jehu, and he says, uh, I'm sorry, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and he said, Thus saith the Lord. He said, I will destroy from Jeroboam him that pisseth against the wall. Have you ever seen that phrase in the Bible? Put up your hand. Him that pisseth against the wall. You see that in the Bible. It's used six times in the Bible. And it's, you know, six is a significant number in the Bible. It's the number of a man. I mean, what did he mean? Obviously, what is he talking about? All the men, right? He said, he said I'm going to kill all the men that come from Jeroboam. Because there's a difference between men and women. Men piss against the wall. Women don't. Okay? And so God said, he used that language. He used that expression. And by the way, that expression is only in the King James Bible. The New King James eliminates it. This is what the New King James says. Males. All the males. And you know, the, the guys who made it, they are males. They're not men. And God said, a man is somebody who pisses against the wall. Did you know this? When I was in Germany, and you're not even going to believe this. See, why are you preaching this? Because it's in the Bible. Okay. I was in Germany, and uh, I went to use the restroom in Germany in several different people's houses. I mean, totally different people. And even in public places... They had a sign that prohibited a man from peeing standing up. I'm not kidding. And I asked my wife, I said, is that like, I thought it was a joke. I was like, is that a joke? That's kind of a crude joke. She said, it's not a joke. She said, no man in Germany pees standing up. That's where we're headed in this country, my friend. We got a bunch of pastors who pee sitting down. We got a bunch of, and you say, oh, you know, you're being vile. I'm not, hey, then God's being vile. God's the one that wrote the Bible, my friend. We got, we got pastors who pee sitting down. We got the President of the United States probably pee sitting down. We got a bunch of preachers. We got a bunch of leaders who don't stand up and piss against the wall like a man. And I'm going to tell you something. That's what's wrong with America. But you know what? 400 years ago, pastors used to stand up and preach that a man needs to be a man. Amen. Not a male. Not the males. 
It's because the editors of the NIV pee sitting down. It's because the editors of the New King James, they all pee sitting down. I'm going to tell you something. I'm not going to pee sitting down. I don't care if it's Germany. I'm going to Germany in about a month. You better know I'm going to stand up everywhere I go. Hold on. Hold on. I just got a message from our facility teams. We're putting signs up in the restrooms <laughs> starting next week. How does that even occur? How does this happen? How does this craziness happen? I, I watch this and I'm dying laughing. I'm like, oh my gosh, how does this happen? But then how do you actually go to a church where they say if you have a baby and it hasn't been baptized at one year of age, it's going to go off in the limbo? How does that happen? Many of you have been told that your family members have committed suicide. They're going to go to hell. How did that happen? I could go on. Women can't be in leadership. How did that happen? It happens when people go to the Bible, which is meant to be a loving instruction manual of how to make life work, and we turn it into an instrument of beating the sheep. Here's the second thing I want, you to, I want you to notice. God allows his followers to suffer so that we can feel compassion for those who suffer. Jesus said when he saw the crowds, he, was, he had compassion on them. They were harassed and helpless. He said to them, um, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the field. And who is going to be sent out into the field? Who's going to actually go into the field to help people? Is, is he asking for more Pharisees to go? No. He's asking for people who feel compassion for the crowds just like them. How do we become more compassionate? God allows us to suffer. People who go through terrible things in life potentially become very compassionate people. I love what Henry Nowen said in his book, The Wounded Healer. He said, who can save a child from a burning house without taking the risk of being hurt by the flames? Who can listen to a story of loneliness and despair without taking the risks of experiencing similar pains in his own heart, even losing his precious peace of mind? In short, who can take away suffering without entering it? The great illusion of leadership is to think that man can be led out of the desert by someone who has never been there. One of my favorite authors, Thornton Wilder, love his plays. One of my favorite short plays by Thornton Wilder is a play called The Angel That Troubled the Waters. It's a play based on a tradition found in John chapter 5 in our Bibles. We're told in John chapter 5 that there was a pool of water in Jerusalem called the Pool of Bethesda. And the tradition went that every time um, the water had a ripple in it, it was because an angel came down and touched the water. And so they had a belief that any time the first person that jumped in the water and touched the water touched it, that person would be instantly healed. And so you, would, you see in the Gospels the paralytics, the paralyzed people who are, who are facing severe physical problems in their lives all gathered around that area. Well, in Wilder's play, there was likewise a group of very broken people sitting at the water's edge. And all of a sudden, out of the distance, in, in walks a doctor. And you're thinking in the story that the doctor is going to the pool to help care for the people, but the doctor lines up and queues up just like everyone else waiting for the water 
to move. The people that are laying there in pain, obviously deformed, look at the doctor and begin screaming at the doctor, why in the world are you here? And the doctor starts screaming back, I may not have your physical ailments, but I deal with severe depression. And internally, I'm hurting just as much as you, and I deserve just as much as any of you to jump into this water. Well, while this argument is going on, an angel comes down, and the play touches the water, and the physician, because he's well physically, dives into the water, and just before he reaches the water's edge in flight, the angel clips him, drops him to the ground. The physician gets up and starts screaming at the angel, let me in there, let me in there. He says, surely, surely, the angels are wise. Surely, O prince, you are not deceived by my apparent wholeness. Your eyes can see the net in which my wings are caught. The angel looks at him and says, without your wound, where would your power be? It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. So physician, draw back. So he's heartbroken. Uh, someone that's paralyzed, rolls over into the water, is instantly healed, sees the physician walking away, having heard the whole argument, and now healed, runs over to the physician and grabs him. And it says, hey, listen, will you come with me? Only an hour. Will you come with me to my home? My son is, is, is lost in dark thoughts. I do not understand him, and only you have ever lifted his mood. Another one grabs him and says, only an hour, please, my daughter, since her child has died, sits in the shadow. She, now, she won't listen to us. And then the play ends. There's a reason why in love service only wounded soldiers can serve because they're the only ones who can understand what feeling broken is like. Many of you have felt incredibly disappointed in life. Needed to understand that those who have been depressed, like that physician in the play, have tasted lethargy and despair and emptiness. Those who have been divorced into the feelings of self-doubt and anxiety that follow in his wake. And those who have struggled with addiction know how feelings of powerlessness and shame battle inside one's guts like two boxers in a ring. There's a reason why we've gone through what we have. It's because our wounds give us the power to feel genuine compassion for people in pain. As Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen.
Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, go to happinessable.com.